The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, I've got uh, 6.33, so we should go ahead and start. Glad to see all of you, and we're going to have a great time tonight. This uh, probably, God willing, be our last time in, in uh, creation. We'll be talking, God willing, next week about providence, doctrine of providence. All right, well, let's pray, and then we'll start. Father, I thank you for this time tonight and for each person that's made their way here tonight. And, Father, I pray that you would be with us as we study and we understand uh, some things from about your world and some things about your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to finish up on uh, some problems with naturalistic evolution. Uh, evolution has some very great difficulties, but you don't hear about that much when uh, it's taught in schools. You don't hear about it much in Time magazine, as they have every six months, something about evolution on the cover, as though anything new were being discovered, but they keep it hot and fresh, and uh, they keep teaching it to us. And so uh, I think it's up to the church then, at least in part, to um, to take up this topic and look at it and, and challenge some presuppositions. And uh, I told you the last time that we were together two weeks ago that there are you know, three basic problems that I'd like to commend to you for you to think about. Um, and for you to keep in mind concerning evolution. The first one we talked about last time is where did life come from? That is an unanswerable question. I'm telling you right now, from an evolutionary point of view, they have no answer for it. There's no one that's answering it. Ever since Stanley Miller did his experiment 45 years ago, they've sought to go beyond it and to show how you know, chains of, of amino acids uh, and proteins could be formed and all that. They have not made any progress from Stanley Miller's rudimentary experiment. They're not getting anywhere. It's just too complicated. They're not succeeding. Yes, Paul? Uh, I was just going to say also, even with these, these highly controlled laboratory circumstances for protein synthesis, mm-hmm. all, that, all that concludes is that it can be done with intelligent design because there's someone designing the yeah, and even there, they're having a hard time. I mean, even with the best of circumstances where you're getting all the left-handed amino acids in one place and all that, you're still not able to pull it off. And so there it is. Um, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but three, three problems. First, how did life evolve from non-life? The second we're going to talk about <clears throat> at length tonight, and that is the fossil record. There's problems with the fossil record, and they're not getting, it's not getting better, it's getting worse for these folks um, because the more fossils they find... Um, and the more time goes on, the, the more suspicion is uh, uh, crowding in. And there are alternate theories that start to come in to explain how evolution and a bad fossil record could both be in place. And so they're struggling with it, trying to make it work. Uh, but we're going to talk about it tonight. And thirdly, um, this problem of what we call irreducible complexity. Um, how, how do you get... Um, uh, organs, capabilities, functions evolving up from nothing. What are the steps to that? Um, and one of the key cardinal principles of naturalistic evolution, of, of, of natural selection, uh, what you commonly call survival of the fittest and all that kind of thing, Darwinism, is that every step along the way must be beneficial to the species. You see that. Every single step along the way has got to be advantageous. Or else, why would those species multiply with that that genetic capability? 
So we've got to show how wings that are 28% evolved could be beneficial. Um, you know, uh, how do you end up with feathers? How do you evolve up into feathers? We're going to talk about those kind of things tonight. So keep those three things in your mind as you're talking to people about evolution. Where did life come from? What about the fossil record? And this, this issue of irreducible complexity. How do you get complex things like the eyeball and like, like, uh, you know, the capability for flight evolving up when it seems that if you remove one little part, the whole thing is worthless? How do we get there? And it's very, very difficult to know. Those three things. Now, uh, this is some review from last time, this inverted pyramid of cards. Uh, look at, at what naturalistic evolution has to explain. You start from nothing, and without God, you get something. Now, explain that to me. That's called the Big Bang. I mean, it's, that's just very, very difficult for me to understand. That's, that's just, that's religion, I think. I mean, even if you don't believe in God, to say, okay, we start with nothing and we're going to end up with something. But there's no God? Uh, that's, that's challenging. But you start with the Big Bang and there, from there, stars form and galaxies and the solar system is formed with our particular sun and it just so happens that these planets get caught in an orbit at just the right distance and start moving around. I mean, think about that. Everything's just perfectly balanced, isn't it? If the gravity's too strong, we get sucked into the earth and burn up. If it's too weak, we fly out away from the... I mean, sucked into the sun, we fly out away from the sun. And, and not only that, but we have to be exactly the right distance from the sun for the temperature to be what it is on the planet. You ever seen pictures of the North and South Pole? Doesn't look like any life up there, right? Well, that's a measure of how narrow the band of temperature has to be. You get just a little bit closer and forget it. We're going to burn up. Ever been to the equator? I mean, it's it's hot, you know? And there's nothing happening in Mer uh, Mercury and any of these planets that are closer to the sun. It's just too hot. It's too hot. And you got to have the atmosphere, everything just right. My goodness, that's a whole line of inquiry we haven't even talked about yet. We zeroed in on the origins of life, but there it is. Earth had to be formed just right for life. Then non-living chemicals have to go up into amino acids. Amino acids, uh, all left-handed, mind you, have to, f have to form their way into proteins to be, to be biologically active. From there, you go into RNA, supposedly. I mean, I'll tell you what, I'm following their, their line of thought. I don't really think it happened this way. I think God said, let there be, and there was. So I don't think we go from RNA to DNA or from proteins. I don't think it happened that way. That's why the, the chemists are having such a hard time doing it. It's very, very difficult to do that. But anyway, uh, I think God just made everything the way it needs to be, and there it was. But um, at any rate, you know, they're positing that we're going from RNA to DNA, from DNA to single-celled organisms, and now at last, for the first time, at step nine, we have life. And you remember I defined that. By the way, has any of you solved the problem? Remember, there's $1.5 million prize, if you can describe how it happened. I mean, think of what you could do with that money, all right? Think of the damage you do to the kingdom of God if you could solve it. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I hope no one wins that prize. But, uh, you know, there's money out there available for people who can solve this problem, how you end up with life. And then you go from a single cell that popped up as the first living progenitor of all life to multi-celled uh, organisms, and from that up to ever-increasing complexity until you have invertebrate marine life, and from invertebrates to vertebrate marine life, those are fishes with skeletons inside their bodies. And so you go from that to amphibians, you know, the ability to move up out of the ocean and crawling on the land. So we've got to see how that's going to happen and how you go from fins to feet. We're going to talk about that. I don't know how you do that, but at any rate, it had to happen, I guess. And, you know, one of the things evolution says, we don't need to answer these problems because evolution happened. It's not up to us to tell you how it happened. 
but we all know it did. And so uh, even though we can't describe how you can go from fins to feet, that's okay because we know it happened. So anyway, I think at that point we're clearly away from science and into the realm of religion. Uh, and then you go from amphibians to reptiles, from reptiles to mammals or to birds. You know, there's different branches on the family tree. Um, from uh, mammals to primates like apes and all that and from primates to man. That's a long journey, isn't it? Ever-increasing complexity, ever-increasing complexity with man the pinnacle of creation or the pinnacle of, uh, you know, we would say, oh, we're not a pinnacle of anything. Carl Sagan and all that were just specks of cosmic dust that have been arranged accidentally. Uh, that's all we are, and that's the way that they argue. Okay, so I want to lay out before you this journey. It's immense, isn't it? And I think, you know, we're talking about swallowing, swallowing a camel here by faith. We're talking about a huge thing that these people are simply accepting. And they can explain very little of it. Very little of it. They really can. They're at their best at the end. They're really at their strongest, how you go from primates to man. That's where most of the research and most of the work goes. But they have to explain the whole journey, don't they? Not just the end. Step 16 to 17 is not the only thing. I wonder how we even got to step 16. And they have to explain that. Okay. Now, last time we talked about the challenges of, of uh, coming up with life. Uh, just go over that very quickly. First, you have to have a primitive earth atmosphere. You've got to have no what? Oxygen. No oxygen. Why do you have to have no oxygen? Burn Everything burns up too fast. It gets destroyed. Oxygen is very corrosive. And that's what, literally, that's what burning is. It's oxidation. It's, it's a combination with oxygen. Do you ever look at a flame, just look at it and wonder what it is? I mean, I, I've done that. I was like, what is that? It's like a spirit thing. You know, you can't even put, I don't know. It's, what is fire? You know, I've thought, maybe you don't. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's me. But I look at it and say, yeah, but that's oxidation. That's combining with oxygen is what's going on there. And the next challenge is amino acids. You know, how you get amino acids and from there to proteins, how they get combined. Um, Two, two problems. This is all review. I talked about it last time. But how do the uh, amino acids combine uh, how, or, yeah, to, to make uh, proteins? And how are they arranged in an intelligent sequence? Because the, the arranging of the sequence is what makes something a certain type of enzyme or a certain type of, of um, uh, protein that makes all the difference. Uh, how you go from there also to RNA and, and ever higher to DNA. How does it happen, the intelligent sequence? The next challenge is the sequencing, as we talked about, and from there the first living cell, and we defined it in nine different ways. That living cell has to... Can you remember any of them? Maybe you can't. I don't know. So at the end of the time, you're all looking kind of glazed. I, I noted that. I said, how did it, Chrissy, how did it go? I said, I'm not sure. Um, I think they got the idea that evolution's hard, but other than that, I don't know. You know? <laughs> Uh, do you remember any of the, the criteria for getting your $1.5 million prize? You have to describe a cell. Yes. It has to reproduce. It has to be able to reproduce. It has to have a cell wall. has to have a cell wall to differentiate it to its surrounding environment. What else? It has to be able to excrete. It has to be able to excrete and before that to eat. I'm going to take it reverse order, but that's fine. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's got to be able to take in and you know, make energy. Everything takes energy. You've got to realize this journey up the pyramid, all of it takes energy energy all the time. And so once you got life, you got to have, I mean, we're just consuming this. Metabolism, right? Every time, well, I have a slow metabolism. That's why I'm heavy, you know, or whatever. <laughs> My metabolism slowed down. Well, what you're talking about is the fact that your cells are taking in nourishment, you know, and uh, you're taking it in at the same rate as when you were 20. And uh, anyway, I'm going to move on. <laughs> Things are different now. 
At any rate, cells metabolize, they do, and then they excrete. What else? Do you remember any other things that they had to do? Interact with its environment to save itself, basically, because it's not a good environment, is it? The environment wants to kill it. <laughs> Definitely the environment wants to kill that little cell. And so it's got to be able to handle the ultraviolet light. It's got to be able to handle the heat and, the, and the everything. And after that, we didn't talk about this because it's not required for the $1.5 million prize, but it's got to be able to combine with other cells. I mean, cells are by nature specialized, aren't they? I mean, it's not just a, a cell. It's a kind of a cell. And, and ever-increasing complexity. What a long journey from that one cell to what we are. I don't know how anybody can accept this. How do they believe this? I don't know. I, you know, I, I look at it and I think it's impossible. It's, impo it's a mathematical impossibility if you look at, 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 uh, at the odds, so to speak. Um, it's just forget it. You know, 1 in 10 to the 50th is a, a practically nil. It's a zero probability. We're talking 10 to the 40 thousandths. It's impossible, but they accept it. It's amazing to me. All right, now let's look at the fossil record. Now we're beginning our new things tonight. The fossil record. Charles Darwin had an assessment of his own theory from, right from the start. His theory is based on uniformitarian theories of geologist Charles Lyell. Charles Lyell lived just a little bit before him. They were contemporaries. Um, Lyell was the one that first began to look at geological evidence for an old earth. And from him we get the geologic column you know, if you ever look at, you ever see where they're cutting through a mountain uh, to make a road and there's certain layers? He would study those kinds of things and he believed that they were, uh, that they evolved gradually, very, very slowly over time. And so that's his explanation for these strata, these different layers. And so that's what we call the geologic column. And based on that, they, they date fossils. Now, what is a fossil? Where does a fossil come from? What is it? a dead thing. Okay. Okay, it gets covered by dirt and, and it's hardened. I want to impress on you how difficult it is for something to become fossilized. Very, very difficult. Why would it be difficult for something to be wholly, completely, physically trapped in a rock? Why would that be difficult? That's right. It decays or scavengers get it. I mean, do you ever wonder why other than roadkill you hardly ever see a dead squirrel? Where do they go? I wonder. I see them everywhere in my yard, but I want to know where they go, you know? I mean, we see an occasional one, and I, I swerve. I, I hate to hit little animals. I just do. I, it's, you know, I will put my life at jeopardy to a point, you know, if I have to run over. They are, by the way, genetically designed to die under the wheels of your car. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> There's just something. They just, they love, they run across and then they get confused and double back and then double. It's not good. It, it's just, because I don't know where they're going. Are you go back, I'll go this way. I don't know what they're doing. And oh, I hate running over them. But um, at any rate, that's terrible. Um, strike that from the tape. We don't even talk about this. But the, the, the fact is, I wonder where they go. They get scavenged, don't they? And so, therefore, it's really pretty hard to get trapped you know, and, and be fossilized. That's very, very difficult. And everybody acknowledges that. Creationists and evolutionists acknowledge that a fossil is a rare thing. It's a rare thing. But we still have lots and lots of them, don't we? So for the most part, you would imagine that fossils would come as a result of some kind of catastrophe. Like you think about Pompeii. They found whole people covered in, in rock, basically. That's a catastrophe. It came on them suddenly. Do you ever see that? And you see people like crouching or huddling or whatever. Um, and so it is with these fossils. And, and I, I, I'll lay my cards on the table. I just think that the best 
the best explanation for a lot of these fossils, not all of them, but a lot of them, is Noah's flood. I just think that, that you talk about a catastrophe, catching things, you know, boom. Uh, I would think that that would explain many of the fossils. Um, and there's, there's a problem with that. Some of the people say, how do you explain then that certain lower order fossils are physically lower, closer to the earth and then, you know, the geologic column. But that's not perfect, actually. It's not perfect. And there are explanations for that. So I'm saying this, there's some challenging problems for saying that the flood explains all the fossils. But I'll say this, that it makes sense that there's not going to be a lot of fossils. But on the other side, it would make sense that there would be a lot of fossils, even if they're hard to be made. And why is that? If you're an evolutionist, why is it an embarrassment that there's not tons and tons of fossils? No transitional evidence. The transitional evidence, but why should there be lots and lots of it? Because you've had millions and millions of years. That's the very same thing. The very same thing that they always re revert to. Remember the carpet that they sweep all the problems under? Hey, look, I don't need to figure out life. There's been billions of, you know, a million year, 100 million years. To, all right, well, that's true, but now it hurts you on the fossil record, doesn't it? Because there should be lots and lots of these, not one or two. Lots of them, and there's none. That's the whole problem, especially at the lower lower orders. Up at the higher orders, you know that there's ape bones, I think, that they found, and we can debate over those, and there is something to talk about, and there it's a matter of interpretation. I told you that that's not our strongest area to discuss because it's a matter of interpreting what you see, but even there, there's some things we should study and think about. But down at the lower order, there's nothing for them to talk about. And that's an embarrassment. And it was an embarrassment right from the start. Lyell never believed in Darwin, never believed Darwinism. He just couldn't accept it because the fossil, he, was, he knew more about the fossil record than anybody alive at his time. And he said there just isn't evidence for it, for what you're talking about, biological evidence uh, for biological evolution. Darwin himself acknowledged the problem, page three. says, why if species have descended from other species by insensibly fine gradations, that's Darwinism, do you see that? That's, that's how he, he defines it, insensibly fine gradations, do we not everywhere see innumerable transitional forms? What do you think he means by innumerable? I told you, you shouldn't be able to drive home for them. I mean, they should be piled up somewhere because there's been millions and millions of years. They shouldn't have to work to find them. They should be everywhere. And Darwin knew that. He said it's a problem that there are not innumerable transitional forms. Why is not nature in all confusion instead of the species being as we see them well-defined? That's a second question, isn't it? Different than the fossil record. Why is it that a cat is a cat, a dog is a dog, an apple tree is an apple tree, I'm a person... Why these clearly defined things and not a total mishmash of confusion en route to some other destination? That was a problem, too. And that's why, you know, a lot of the folks that are arguing against evolution say we don't see evolution going on around us either. We don't see half a cat, half a dog, that type of thing. We don't see that. We see defined species that can reproduce and variation within the species. But that's all. And so, right from the start, Darwin um, saw this as a problem. And then he said in another quote, I do not pretend that I should ever have suspected how poor a record of the mutations of life the best preserved geological section presented. He said he was actually, uh, let me put that in simple words, I was shocked at how bad the fossil record was. I thought it would be a little better, uh, but I, I wasn't prepared for how poor the record was. Had not the difficulty of our not discovering innumerable transitional links between the species which appeared at the commencement and close of each formation pressed so hardly on my theory. So he's getting 
pressed by this. It's bothering him. It's pressing itself in. The fossil record, the fossil record pressing it. Now, th what's interesting to me is that this is kind of new and shocking to Christians to hear that the fossil record is such a strong evidence against evolution. Don't you tend to think of fossils and all that kind of thing as strong evidence for evolution? Isn't that kind of the way you were taught? Certainly up at the, uh, the far end about how primates evolved into, um, into people. We think, oh, we're just stumbling over transitional figures, and we really aren't. So, um, hey, Herb. No, Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, so at any rate, um, he was, this was a difficult thing. And what did he hope? Well, he hoped that later generations would find these what he called missing links. Okay, did you ever hear about the missing link? Remember Bigfoot when you were growing up? Yeti and all that, the missing link, you know? Well, that whole language is faulty because we're not looking for one missing link. He talked about constant gradations of genetic change. He didn't use the word genetic because it hadn't really been developed, that science yet, but that's what he's talking about. Well, therefore, we're not looking for a missing link. We're looking for many, many infinite missing links. All right, therefore, the essence of the issue is abrupt appearance. That's an important term. What do we mean by abrupt appearance? Well, things appear in the fossil record fully formed, and then they disappear. You know, they appear and they go extinct, but there doesn't seem to be anything that led up to them. They're just there, abrupt appearance. It's exactly what you would expect if creation is true. It's exactly the opposite. And that's the whole thing with a theory, a scientific theory. They, they say, oh yes, we acknowledge that, that evolution is a theory, but you non-scientists don't know what we mean by a theory. Well, I do. A theory should be able to make predictions. And based on the, on the theory, you should be able to predict what you'll find. In that's the way they tested the theory of uh, relativity. That, it, that starlight should bend a certain amount uh, more than you would think. And so that's how, they, that's how they, they prove that it's true. You should be able to make predictions. If this is true, then such and such. All right, if evolution is true, predict something about the fossil record. You don't need to go anywhere. Just predict something. Go ahead. You can do it. Tell me something about the fossil record if evolution is true. Millions and millions of years, constantly mi micro gradations of change in species. What? Tons and tons of transitions. Predict that. All right, you may, it's not what, what we find. What, you, what should you do then to your theory? Change it. <laughs> chuck it. Yeah. Right. You know, that's what you would think that they would do. Why don't they chuck it? Well, they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. I, at that point, I resort to Romans 1 to answer the question because I don't think there's any good reason not to chuck that theory. Now, what's interesting, a number of non-born-again people, I'm not trying to judge them, but I'm, they're not claiming to be born again, are trying to chuck the theory of evolution. The problem is they don't have really anything to take its place because I think it's true that, that creation and evolution exhaust the logical possibilities of how we came to be. I don't think there's a third option. I think you're going to end up with God, a wise creator. Now, you may not end up with the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but you will end up with, a, with a, an intelligent, powerful creator or naturalistic evolution. Those are the two options. All right, so problem has only been made worse by the last century and a half of fossil research and by millions and millions of years. Scientific theory is testable by predictions it makes. We've, we've talked about that. There should be billions and billions of transitional forms. There are, in the fossil record, approximately one quarter of a million fossils. That's what we've got. That's what we're working with. That's a lot of fossils, isn't it? That's a lot. So it's not like we're, we're dealing with, you know, we're dealing with a, um, an immature science here. Like we're dealing with something that's just been discovered, like certain aspects of recombinant DNA work or genetics or whatever, which is really a relatively new science. 
We're not dealing with a relatively new science. This fossil research has been going on a long time, and we're dealing with a very extensive fossil record. You can go see them. You can probably go dig them up if you go to the right place. And my guess is when you dig them up, you won't find anything they don't already have. All right? You may hope you will. Get your face on cover of Time magazine if it's connected from step 16 to step 17 on our pyramid. Okay? And to make it connect from 16 to 17, just show that it's somehow related to a primate, and they'll assume that it's got to do with human evolution. All right, we'll get to that later. But at any rate, uh, there are a quarter of a million fossil species, tens of millions of cataloged forms. So we are not dealing with an immature record. We're dealing a very extensive fossil record. Having said that, there are no transitional forms at the lower ends and only debatable transitional forms as you go up the pyramid. You see what I'm saying? No transitional forms at the lower end, debatable as you go up. That's what we're dealing with. This guy, Douglas Futuma, who uh, wrote a book against um, Philip Johnson. Philip Johnson's book was entitled Darwin on Trial. This guy wrote a book uh, entitled Science on Trial, and so he's trying to refute Philip Johnson. So this is what he said. It is considered likely that all the animal phyla became distinct before or during the Cambrian period, for they all appear fully formed without intermediates connecting one form to another. This is called the Cambrian explosion. Now, the Cambrian is a certain level. Now, how do, you, how do they assign these, these levels? Well, it has to do with that geological column. Remember, you know, you're talking about some chunk of rock, and then they look at layers and strata, and they find a fossil down here. They just calculate, based on its depth and other fossils that they find in the area, what level it's from. Well, they talk about this thing called the Cambrian explosion. And in the Cambrian era, all of a sudden, you have all of these complex creatures suddenly appearing, and they don't know why. Could be that the flood happened then, but anyway, <laughs> suddenly they're all there, all at the same level, all of them, you know, fully formed, and this is a problem. It's called by, by evolutionists, the Cambrian explosion, and so there's all of these forms, and he, this guy, Futuima, said that there is, they appear fully formed without intermediates connecting one form to another. Now let's uh, run our way up the pyramid and let's see what we're talking about, okay? First thing is there is not one transitional form from multi-celled creatures to marine invertebrates. Well, what do we mean by marine invertebrates? Well, I've got a picture of one uh, in your handouts there. The first picture, the trilobite. Can you look at him or her? I don't know, maybe it's a her. I can't tell. <laughs> There it is, um, a trilobite. It's called trilobites. There's these three lobes, the left plural lobe, the axial lobe, and the right plural lobe. Trilobes, trilobite. That's what it is. And it's got these little legs, and it moves around, and they're extinct. They, they're gone. Can't find them, as far as we know. I'll tell you what, a number of times they've thought something was extinct, and they pull one up out of the Indian Ocean. We'll talk about that later. But at any rate, you know, some things have become extinct, and these species are extinct. But the point is that they are, I think, relatively complicated. Could you make one of those? Think about it. Could you go into the lab or shop and make a trilobite? The answer is no, you couldn't, okay? Only God can make a trilobite. It's very complicated. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think Stanley Miller, with his little experiment, can go from his test tube to a trilobite? All right, so we all fully acknowledge trilobites are pretty complicated things with feet and with, you know, we're, we're really quite far up the evolutionary scale. But there's nothing in the fossil record that leads up to a trilobite. Not in the entire world a single transitional figure that leads up to this guy or gal. 
All right. I don't know. What do you think? Guy, gal? I'll leave that for you. It looks like something out of a horror movie to me, but um, God made it. Isn't that weird? I mean, God makes things we would, you know, we would never have made, but there it is. There's a trilobite. Do you think it's significant that there's not a single fossil transitional form up to this thing, trilobite? I think it is. That would bother me if I were an evolutionist. You know how many fossils there are showing trilobites? Oh, tons. There are actually different kinds of trilobites, but they all look about the same. All right, so that's you get the variation within the species. But you don't have a half a trilobite or 80% of a trilobite. They don't exist. And so in all the world, there's not a single transitional form. Look what Dwayne Gish says on page three. Nowhere on the face of the earth have we found a single ancestor for these complicated invertebrates. Soft-bodied microscopic bacteria have been found, but not a single transitional form. Do you see that? So you say, well, their transitional forms were just destroyed. They couldn't be fossilized. That's just not true. We have those. We just don't have anything leading up to a trilobite. Score one for us. Keep record. Somebody keep score. Score one for us. That's big. Next one, not a single transitional form from the marine invertebrates to marine vertebrates. Now, the experts tell us that this evolution took 100 million years. That seems like a long time to me. I don't know what you all think about 100 million years. They tell us that's really short. But I think that's a long time. How many trilobites do you think could live in 100 million years and die? Okay. Lots and lots of them. Okay. Now, what is a marine um, vertebrate? What are we talking about, my marine, marine vertebrates? These are fish. They're fish. Like, you know, fish bones and all that with a little internal skeletal structure. So we go from what you call an exoskeleton um, to an internal skeleton. That's a pretty big transition, don't you think? All right, to go from a lobster or a, you know, crab type of thing to something with a skeleton inside. I think they're just two different things. God just made them, and they're just different. But they think they went from one to the other. Okay, show me. Show me a half of one. Show me the job half done. Okay? That's, I mean, that's huge. And there's not a single fossil transitional form from the marine invertebrates to the marine vertebrates. Not one. Not a single one. hundred million years, they said it took. And they can't find one? I think that's huge. Now, I told you, the further up we go on the scale, then they'll start finding some. Say, well, okay, then evolution must be... No, you've got to explain all of this. You can't say, well, we're really good up here. Okay, we're really good with the primate thing. Okay, well, <laughs> I would question that. Okay, I'm gonna, I am going to question it. But let's concede it. But I'm saying, yeah, but you've got to show me what happened back here because you're saying it's all cut from the same... It's, it's all a steady evolution from one to the other. They couldn't do the first step, life. I told you that was the hardest one. But it's still pretty hard down here at this lower end. They've got no fossils at all. All right, from there we go from fish to amphibian. There is one form, and uh, it exists, um, or so they thought, the coelacanth. I would never have known how to pronounce that word if they hadn't spelled it out for me there, and so I spelled it out for you. Coelacanth, okay? It was thought by paleontologists to have been an immediate ancestor of the amphibians and was assumed to have been extinct for 70 million years till they pulled one out of the Indian Ocean in 1938. All right? They looked at it and said, here's a coelacanth. Great. Now we can see that transition from marine, in, uh, marine vertebrate to um, amphibian, right? Well, first of all, think about it. Think carefully what we're talking about with an amphibian. What's unique about an amphibian? What makes it different than a fish? 
it can breathe air, right? That's different. It can live up on land. So it's got to have an entirely different soft structure. It's got to have different lungs and all that. I mean, just different. It's got to be different. That's what makes it, you know, makes it amphibious. All right. Well, a coelacanth had no preparation whatsoever for living on land. None. It was just a sea-dwelling sea creature. That's it. So they say, oh, well, back to the drawing board. We don't have the coelacanth. Well, then you have nothing. There is no evidence whatsoever for the transition from marine uh, vertebrate to, um, or from fish, marine vertebrate, to amphibian. There's nothing. Now, they're talking about feet from fins to feet, okay? It isn't just breathing. You say, okay, we don't have, we're not going to have records of soft organs. Of course we're not. I mean, they're going to get scavenged. They're going to get destroyed. What we have are the bones. We have the outline, the structure, okay? Well, even there, we, there should be some evidence because in order to move around on land, they have to have feet. Well, your feet, I mean, I'm, I'm a mechanical engineer. You, you can't just hang feet on the end of something soft. You've got to build the thing up from the ground up to walk. You know what I'm saying? It's got, to, it's got to be connected to the spine and to a pelvis of some sort or bones that can support the weight of this thing. And amphibians do, all right? But we, we therefore should see transitional fossils from fins to feet. You see what I'm saying? And we don't. Um, although Dwayne Gish did find an example in the Chicago Museum of Natural History uh, and he was very interested in this uh, transitional figure. Obviously, we would be interested in a transitional figure like this, which shows half fish, half reptile, with a label saying, conquest of the land, colon. Their legs evolved from fish fins. Well, that w that's significant. And so a guy like Dwayne Gish is going to go over and look at it. All right? But the fine print at the bottom said, inferred intermediate. What, is that? what does that mean, inferred intermediate? Made up. <laughs> this is what must have happened. What does that tell you about the Chicago Museum of Natural History and their fossil record? Tell me, think carefully. What does it tell you? Wishful thinking. Wishful thinking. It means. Complicating something that's unproven to them. Why is it unproved? If they had a fossil, don't you think they'd tell us? Exactly. They don't have one, so they've got to get an artist to draw it. Say, well, what do you want me to draw? Well, we're looking for something from fins to feet. What? Well, from fins halfway, well, what do you mean halfway? Well, just give us seven or eight different things. We'll choose the one that looks best, okay? I'm not joking. What else could it have been? That's about how the process must have gone. I don't know how much the artist got paid, but that's what they had to do. Inferred intermediate. Inferred because our fossil record has failed us. We don't have one. And you can say, well, maybe that's just Chicago Museum of Natural Science, okay? Well, don't you think, I mean, they contact other museums, British Museum of Natural There isn't one. Nobody's got one. They don't have to have it. They can just say, well, this is a picture of the one over at the British Museum of Natural Science or History. It just doesn't exist, folks. Score another one for us. What's the score so far? Three nothing? Okay. All right. That's not counting, you know, non-life to life. We won that one huge. Um, amphibian to reptile, no uh, satisfactory candidates. Now, admittedly difficult to document this in the, in the fossil record since skeletal structure is so sim similar. So this isn't really a big point for either side, all right? You're, you're going to have a hard time finding a fossil either way. But there are problems logically with the transition. Amphibians lay soft-shelled eggs in water. Reptiles lay hard-shelled eggs on land. So there's a difference there. But amphibians and reptiles are pretty close. It's all going to be in the soft stuff, isn't it? And that all disappears. So that's, that's not much of a point either way. 
from reptile to mammal, this is where Darwinists start to come in. They start to shine, so they think. And I told you from this point on, they're going to start saying, yeah, we've got this, we've got that. All I'm telling you is, okay, every one of them is questionable, but um, you, they still need to answer the first three ones. And if they can't, I, if I were them, I'd give up the theory. And I don't know why they don't, other than that there's a predisposition to hold on to it, no matter what the evidence. Okay? But from reptile to mammal, you've got these therapsids, uh, transitional forms from reptile to mammal. And this, all, this is where Stephen Jay Gould and people like him uh, make their money. All right? They say, okay, you've got, um, what is the difference between a reptile and a mammal? Okay? And it has to do with skeletal structure, jaw bones, physical a attributes. This is how they characterize things. People make their living studying bones and skeletons. They can, they can look at a bone of a dead person been dead for 100 years and tell you whether it's a man or woman, how much they weighed maybe, and this is what they do. And, and that's their science, and that's fine. So they're able to say, okay, these are the differences, and so therefore a transition figure would look like this, and here we have one. That's how it works. But even there, it's debatable. And realize, when you're talking about mammals, what are you talking about? What are some different mammals we're dealing with here? Well, certainly man, we're, you know, we're mammals. Bears, Bears dogs, porpoises, whales. I mean, that's unbelievable variety. And there's no, don't you think there'd be some transitional figures, transitional forms up into a whale? Or up, I mean, uh, we're talking about a whole bunch of mammals. And again, oh yeah, but there's been millions and millions. All right, fine, give me one transitional figure up into a cow or a bear or some of these things. Well, they do. They work on horses. They work on stuff. They do all the time. But... Um, I'm saying that we should not be working, have to work so hard to find these transitional forms up into each of these various species. There should be plenty of them and not just one or two. All right, what about reptile to bird? All right, that's another branch. They say, ah, now here we got you. We've got the Archaeopteryx. They found the Archaeopteryx. Now let's look at, at the Archaeopteryx. It's really quite a thing. See the next page after the trilobite? The Archaeopteryx... The evidence for the Archaeopteryx is there in the fossil. Do you see it? <clears throat> Do you see the stone, the box right in the center? Don't look at the artist's rendition on the upper left-hand corner. That's fantasy, pure fantasy. Um, lower right-hand corner is an artist's attempt to paint what the fossil shows. Okay? So lower right-hand corner is less fantasy than upper left-hand corner. Do you see what I'm saying? But look at the fossil itself. Now, what do you notice about the fossil? What do you see traced out in the rock? A feather. Is that important? Well, yeah, it's important. What's a feather for? Well, it's for flying, okay? But yet they say that the physical bony structure is that of a reptile. So they have a transitional figure here with Archaeopteryx from a reptile to a bird. Now, should that bother us? Well, I don't think so. Uh, my feeling is that God can make any kind of species he wants, and just because something physically looks like a reptile in its bony structure doesn't mean a thing. It sure doesn't prove evolution's true. Realize the things we've already dealt with, the evolution so-called so of life and all these others. So we have one, one transitional figure, supposedly. I think it's just a bird. I think it's a bird. That's what it is. Now take a good look at the feather right there. Okay, we're going to come back to the feather. But just look at it and imagine that thing evolving. Look at it. That's what a feather looks like. Do you see all the little barbs, the little, the, the stiff structure going down there and all that? That's what it is necessary for flight. Flight's not a small deal, is it? We're going to talk about that. But I, I imagine 
evolving up into these little barbules and the little uh, spindly structure that goes out there. It's got to be very light and very strong, all right, in order for the feathers to work. There it is. We'll come back to this picture later to talk about feathers. But there's the Archaeopteryx. By the way, um, you see the picture of the pro-avis. Pro means early or progenitor ancestor bird. <laughs> that's what it is. So that's a reptile with useless wings, you see. He's working up into the wings and dragged it around as his ancestors have now for 50 million years. He's 60% evolved and making his way around town with those half wings. Do you see it? There it is. And that's what they anticipate. This is what we call an artist's rendition of a transitional figure. I'm just saying that it would be good if we had more than just an artist's rendition, but actually many transitional figures from reptiles up into bird. They do have the Archaeopteryx. They have one. Score one for them if you want to. I say God just made it, and it's nice to see a feather in the fossil. Other than that, realize this is the kind of stuff we would needed to have had. Lots of it, not one. Okay? All right, so let's move on. We've got the Archaeopteryx, and we'll give them that one. But other than that, we have no transitional figures up uh, from reptile to bird. Okay? Now, we could go on from there, but I'm going to stop. I've made the point. Gould put up the white flag on the fossil record, Stephen Jay Gould, in effect. Now, he wouldn't tell you that he did this, but I'm saying he did. All right, 1972, he came up with a theory called punctuated equilibrium. All right, what is equilibrium? What does that mean? Balance, stasis, everything's the same. So what is he saying? I concede the point that in the fossil record, you have stasis. You have species entering and leaving fully formed. I concede it. But I'm not going to give up on evolution. Instead, what I'm going to say is that stasis or equilibrium is punctuated by instantaneous, relatively to the geologic column, changes that could not be measured in the fossil record because they were so fast. How does it work? Well, uh, let me read what, what they write. In 1972, Niles Eldridge and Stephen Jay Gould revived this idea under the name punctuated equilibrium. They, ag they agreed that transitional fossils are plentiful. Hmm. Re realize I'm, this is straight off the internet, and I, I just brought it over. This is written by an evolutionist. They agree that transitional uh, fossils are plentiful and that smooth transitional figures are sometimes found. I inserted the next word. That's not them. Do you see that? Where? Please, show us a, a few would be good. All right, where? However, they argue that these are not as common as theory predicted. Well, then you should adjust your theory, but at any rate... These are not as common as theory predicted. Instead, we often see a species go on unchanged for a long time, and then the species is replaced without any transition by a new species that looks like a variation of the old one. <laughs> That's called creation, folks. And, and what they're trying to do, they're saying that, okay, we admit that there's nothing, no change, long time, and then boom, sudden change, new species, with very little difference in between the two. How do we explain it? Okay, so we've got... This and I drew this for you, you know, about a month ago. But it would look like this, and I couldn't draw the line long enough, so let's shorten it way down. Equilibrium, in, almost instant change, a little, a little bit of a slope, and realize that slope over the scale is still going to be thousands of years. But in the geologic timetable, that's a blink of an eye. That's nothing, and so we shouldn't expect to see many fossils for this. Whew dodge that bullet, okay? We don't have any fossils for transitional forms. But it happened. Well, how did it happen? How did it occur? Well, this is what they say. A group of creatures was cut off from the rest of their species. Since the group probably lived in a small, inhospitable fringe area, they would be under selection pressure. 
What this means is they're living in a situation that naturally, natural selection is enhanced and, and really moves fast because they're, they're under pressure. Maybe it's really hot, they're really cold, maybe something's going on. And so as a result, survival of the fittest, things die quickly and the gene pool gets affected dramatically that way. Being a small group, they were able to evolve fairly quickly. Then they later spread and replaced their parent species. Now that's interesting. They do real well in this really hot or really cold area. Now they spread over the whole planet and replace it, but that's what they say. Now imagine the fossil record. In the small fringe area, the complete history might be recorded in the much larger main region, we would see the parent species and then suddenly see a slightly different species. The chances are very good that we will never happen to dig for fossils in that small region. So, sorry, we're not gonna find any transitional figures in the fossil record. And we haven't found them, so that proves our theory. Um, <laughs> So there's a reduced chance of finding transitional fossils. Significance of the theory, proof that the fossil record is hostile to evolution. Do you, need, do you see that? These guys love evolution. This, this guy was the number one spokesman for evolution. And he's conceding that the fossil record is hostile to the theory of evolution by coming up with this punctuated equilibrium. <clears throat> this is controversial, by the way. Remember that big fat uh, textbook I had, the biology textbook that I brought? I didn't want to haul it up here, so I quoted right out of the book, but imagine me opening up this ponderous tome and reading. Punctuated equilibria theory, which has generated much debate, is still controversial among biologists today. You know why it's controversial? Because they know that they've raised the white flag on the fossil record. They've given up, okay? And they don't want to do that. They keep hoping against hope that more fossils will be found, just like Darwin did 150 years ago. They keep hoping that some clever young man or woman somewhere is going to find some new way to find a whole bunch of... Here they all are! <laughs> We've been looking for them, and here they were the whole time. They're hoping for that, and so they don't want to give up. Uh, give up. But this is what the biology textbook says. But whatever the pace of change may have been, it is clear that organisms have evolved over time. New chapter. Why, why do they say that? Well, it's like, we still believe in evolution, don't we? Even though there's no fossils, we still believe. Yeah, we believe. Okay, good. We can go on and write the next chapter, and that's what they do. They just keep going. Presuppositions. By the way, what I write at the bottom there, page five? <laughs> don't confuse me with the evidence. Please. It bothers me when you bring up this evidence. Fossil record is great evidence that evolution is a faith. Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Therefore, evolution is the assurance of fossils hoped for, the conviction of transition forms not seen. I think that's awesome. I didn't write it, but I think it's great. So just write that one down. They keep hoping against hope that these fossils and transitional figures will be found. Okay? All right, better explanation for the fossils is Noah's flood, and I could develop, that could be a whole talk in it itself, but um, that's what I think is a better explanation. Any questions about the fossil record right now? Do any of you have a transitional figure or a fossil at home? Because now would be a good time to bring it out. No? All right, let's move on. Another devastating problem for evolution is irreducible complexity. Michael Behe's uh, Darwin's Black Box. Have you seen this book? This is a really, really good book. It's really, really fascinating to read. Um, it's got all kinds of, of interesting things. What is Darwin's Black Box? What is it? Well, Darwin's Black Box is the cell. He thought the cell was akin to like, like lime jello, just kind of a boring, indistinct blob of stuff. All right, simple, not even worth studying. And he didn't know much about it anyway, and, and there really wasn't much to look at. 
he assumed that what he didn't know was simple. Okay? And one of the articles I read earlier about this um, likens it to... You ever read Calvin and Hobbes? All right, you know when Calvin and his tiger Hobbes get in a box, a cardboard box, and transport themselves over time, they fly? The transmogrifier, but it also flies. There's one that flies. You know how they're flying through the... You know, and they go back in time and all that? In a box. Well... Boxes are not very aerodynamic. They just aren't. I mean, even if you put the flaps out, they really don't fly that well, okay? And so what it means is that you could imagine the box could fly when you're a child, right? And that's that's the beauty of Calvin and Hobbes, because it does fly, because it's in his imagination. And so it is with Darwin's black box. He imagines this whole thing's going to fly. But when you know more about the cell, you know more about microbiology, you know more about these things, it doesn't fly. It gets harder, not easier. That's the whole point of his book. I cannot follow everything in the book. There's some of you in this room that could follow it better than I can. You could explain it better than I can. The basic idea is you can't evolve up into these cellular and microbiological systems. They're irreducibly complex. What do we mean by irreducible complexity? All right, well, the idea that he gave us, so let's, let's read there on page six. In The Origin of Species, Darwin stated, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Do you see that? He's given us the silver bullet. If you can find something that could not have evolved up absolutely, then my theory is false. Well, B, he says he has. Now, his critics say he hasn't. All he's saying is, we don't know how it evolved up into that, but that doesn't destroy evolution. What he's saying is, okay, but please try with everything you know. I'm I'm asking the Nobel Prize winners in my field, give me a description of how this could have come step by step. And they're working on it. They're trying. So at least he's engaging them. But uh, they're thinking about it. This is what Behe, how he defines it. A system which meets Darwin's criterion is one which exhibits irreducible complexity. By irreducible complexity, I mean a single system which is composed of several interacting parts that contribute to the basic function and where the removal of any any one of these parts causes the system to effectively cease functioning. Now, the illustration is this, which I bought at Walmart today for $1.27. You get four of them for $1.27. I was standing there in line with my mousetrap. This is a very, very strong spring. I've actually drawn it, too. I didn't know that I'd get out to Walmart today, so I drew you one as well. Do you see there? Irreducibly complex. Sorry for the misspelling. I didn't notice that until just now. At any rate, irreducibly complex, the mousetrap. What do we mean by irreducibly complex? You say, what is complex about a mousetrap? Well, you may not think it's that complex, but it took them a while to, to invent it, you know? And they're working all the time on a better mousetrap, aren't they? Well, what is he meaning? Well... Somebody tell me how the mousetrap displays irreducible complexity. You remove any part and it doesn't work. Yeah, I'm going to remove any part. Okay, look at this. This thing here, this thing here is the uh, little trip hammer thing, okay? Uh, that, keeps the, that keeps this bar in place before the mouse gets there. Suppose you don't have this there. It won't work. It won't work. Why won't it work? Yeah, the mouse is just going to come and eat to his heart's delight and walk away. By the way, this little thing here, this is not part of the irreducible complexity, but it keeps this thing from hanging, dangling around. I'm going to remove it. There it goes. Now it's just hanging around. So that was not part of the system. That's something that Walmart or whatever put in there so that it wouldn't hang around. But all right, now we're down to it. Everything left you need. 
You need it, okay? What about this, this hammer thing? Do you need that? Just missed. That's what does the work. Breaks the mouse neck. That's it. Do you need the spring? Does it, is, yeah? Okay. You got to have the spring. How about this little flat thing here with this little... Yeah, you got to have that too. That's the enticer. You put the bait on there. Did you all ever set one of these? Have you ever gotten stung by one? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I should even try this Step right now. Real easy on the floor. Think so? Yeah, you gotta catch it right or hmm? <laughs> What? <laughs> oh, set it down first. <laughs> Sorry. Well, you know, I'll play with it later. Um, right, the idea is, okay, suppose you don't have one of those pieces, none of it works. And what he's saying is that this is a problem for Darwinism because you look at the cellular structures and there's a lot of stuff like that and you take away uh, uh, one little aspect of it and the whole thing's worthless now. The whole thing's worthless. And that's what you're, what you're looking at. There's examples and I'm not going to go through them right now, but you could look at them. I gave you a little example there on the mousetrap um, <clears throat> the mousetrap uh, drawing which I think is a nice drawing. I, I haven't lost my touch. I used to actually draw um, things, but I, I couldn't. I, I downloaded it off the computer, and it was terrible. It just looked awful, the little, little jaggy lines everywhere. So I drew it in there. But the idea is, all right, like with the, for example, the motor mechanism of E. coli. You guys remember E. coli? Was it Jack in the Box that had the E. coli scare out there in the West? Was it Jack in the Box? Yes. I think it was, yeah. Are they still in business? I don't know. Actually, I think they are. I saw Jack and I said, wait a minute, I, th- I think I remember something about you. Oh, yeah, E. coli. Well, anyway, E. coli has a little flagellum. It's a little um, tail thing that kind of whips around and lets it do what? Move. Move. Let's swim, right? Well, that thing's unbelievably complicated. And that's what he's saying. You've got to have kind of like an O-ring through the cell wall. Why do you have to have like an O-ring, the effect of an O-ring? Okay, so that the cell membrane, the, the cell wall isn't ruptured. It isn't violated by it. You've got to have uh, like this very complicated chemical mechanism to make it turn like that. It's got to be connected to the intelligence of an E. coli, whatever that is, so it can know where to go. It's a complicated thing. Let's say you don't have the O-ring. Let's say you don't have the ability. What good is the tail going to do you? It's going to do you no good. And if it does you no good, then how did it evolve? That's his point. How did it evolve? How do we get that far out into complexity? Now, here's my point about irreducible complexity. I want you to follow me, okay? I notice this. I love words. I just think about words a lot. And um, what's the shortest word you know in terms of letters? I. I I is one. A. Give me another one. Oh, there we go. That's one. All right. Let's start with O. There's a word like, oh, say, can you see? And oh, the depths of the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. There it is. We'll start with that one. All right. Let's go up the evolutionary line, okay? We're going to add something next. We're going to add an N. Is that a word? On. Okay. Okay. Well, let's add another one. One. Is that a word? Does that count? We're in business. If I put an X in there, we're done, right? Like O-N-X. That's nothing. Worthless. So you got to have a word every step of the way. You see what I'm talking about here? Okay. What about this? Let's add an H. Is that a word? Yeah. Hona, an edge. All right. How about this one? Let's add another letter. What am I doing by adding letters, by the way? What am I, what am I imitating in the evolutionary process? 
I know, but at the genetic level, I'm adding complexity, aren't I, genetically? How does that happen? Please explain it to me. Nobody's been able to tell me that. How do you add information? Nobody can do it. But anyway, that's what, this is what evolution is saying happens. We're adding letters, and the letters that get added make sense. It actually does something for you. All right? There you go, honey. Honey's sweet. All right, let's add another one. Honey's. It's a, it's a restaurant up here on uh, <laughs> That's a key step. Got to have that one, okay? I was so grateful for that restaurant. Can anyone tell me the last letter? S, where? Shoney's. There you go. It was a journey. Shoney's from Oda Shoney's. Okay, there it is. You can do this at home, all right? All the way up. What is the point I'm making? Every step of the way has to make sense. It's got to be a word. If not, it doesn't count. And so you have to tell me how 28% of a wing is going to help something. There's got to be an advantage. And then 29% of a wing and 30% of a wing. You see? The feathers. Look at the feathers. Go back. I told you we'd go back and look at Look at the feathers now. Okay? Where are they? Oh, Archaeopteryx, right? Look at the feathers. Do you see that? That is, that's a feather. Praise God for the feather. Praise God for it. How is, how is 60% of a feather going to help anything? It's not. So how are you going to get to 61%? That's my question. And, and then how are you going to get to 62%? And if you say, oh, we have millions and millions of years, okay, that means that for 20,000 years, some poor creature walked around with 61% of a feather. Isn't that what they're saying, folks? Think about what they're saying. He's, you know, these guys, Dawkins and all these other evolutionists, they say, yes, we agree that every step must be beneficial to the creature or Darwinism fits, falls apart. If you add the letter X here, the whole thing's worthless. It's gone. It's not a species anymore. Or it doesn't help. How do they do that? And I want to know how they know what letter to add. I knew what letter to add because I'd noticed that before about the word Shoney's. I was driving down the road. I said, wow, you can break it down to the letter O. Never dreaming it would have something to do with evolution. I just thought it was fun. By the way, evolution, <laughs> evolution, you know, breaks out if like I was doing this with Jeremy earlier, and he said, uh, "I know what letter you're going to add next. P for phone." All right, and no joke, I'll, you know, that's how it branches out. It adds a different letter, and off you go to a different species. But what I'm telling you is, I don't know how we know it had a P and not an X or a K or an L there. There's an intelligence behind all this. I don't know, the whole thing just confuses me. Irreducible complexity says that 61% of a wing or a feather is going to be beneficial for 10,000 years to a species. Beneficial. So that it'll keep making progress to 62% of a wing and to 63% and finally it can fly. This is what it was for. I'm the first one that could fly. I got 100% of a wing. My grandfather, he fell down there, splat at the bottom of the canyon. <laughs> But I can fly. Yes. He would say that it has to have a purpose, or else natural selection doesn't work. There's an advantage to the species. That's why it keeps it. It helps it to survive. Survival of the fittest. And we learned later, fittest meant genetically fittest. There were just genetic advantages. So 61% of a feather has got to be genetically advantageous or else it'll lose the function, the feature. It'll go. Yeah? Um, what about a 
feathers and flightless birds. Yeah, I, I, I mentioned that actually. Page 7, middle. To argue that many species have, uh, some argue uh, that many species have feathers that cannot fly. I guess I didn't finish the sentence, but I guess what I would say is it's not as much of a problem for a creationist. We can just say God made it that way. And it's actually in the book of Job that God boasts over the ostrich, right? He says, isn't the ostrich a weird creature? Isn't that about, about what he says? It takes its eggs and despises them like they're nothing. And, and yet it's fast. It can run fast. So God made an ostrich with feathers that can run. Hey, look at that one. And he boasts over it. He's like, look at that. Isn't that something? So it's not a, as much of a problem for us. We don't have to explain why it's useful to the ostrich to have feathers. We don't. It's not our job. We can say, I don't know. God made it that way. We, he wanted to make a chicken or ostrich with feathers that, you know, and God made it that way. Okay? They, however, can't say that. They say, well, we say evolution made it that way. Well, okay, what you're saying then is that it was beneficial. And you have to show me why. And he would say, I don't need to. It just happened. And that's when it's a religion. It's just a religion. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Well, yeah, I, I figured that would be a, sort of an evolutionist point. Right. But I don't think it's much of a point because like, the feathers would be like, keep the bird warm or something. Mm-hmm. You know, still don't really work if it's completely. Right. And, and here's the thing. They would say, okay, we don't know. We don't know how 61% of a feather helps. Let's say it keeps it warm. I want to know, okay, how does it go on to 62%? It's a constant genetic thing. We've got to get those little barbules with the little things sticking down so that it's lightweight and stiff, and then when they go together and it's raining, it can fly and flap. And, and, and not just feathers. It's got to have structure. It's got to have you know, the, the, the flapping mechanism and all that. And, and again, remember, there's no fossil record of a transition into flight. These things flew when they entered the, the fossil record. Boom, they can fly. So we're not helped at all by the fossil record. There's no evidence for it. So we've got to imagine it and think how it might have happened. They're at a great disadvantage in that discussion. Good question. Very good question. All right, uh, final question, the origin of man. Gould asked kind of a mocking question for us. How, oh, my goodness, 733. I tell you what, y'all, y'all I'm, I'm going to stop here, and then if you guys want to leave, I want to keep going. I don't know. Feel free to go. Nobody will think a thing. I'm, I'm close to done, though. If you want to get up and go, if you've got somewhere to go, if you've got a child in child care, go ahead and go. Um, Gould asked this question. Would God, for some inscrutable reason, or merely to test our faith, create five species, one after the other? Uh, these are humans now. I can't say all these. Australopithecus, Afarensis, uh, Africanus, Homo habilis, Homo erectus, Homo sapiens, to mimic a continuous trend of evolutionary change. What is he assuming? It's obvious that evolution happened by looking at those five species, right? Had to happen. Well, instead, I think what's going on is they started with evolution, and they go back to these bones that they found in the dirt, and they say, oh, there's this, there's that. They give them these highfalutin Latin names, okay, which you can even derive where, where they came from. Somebody thought of it. It's not much different than an artist's rendition. Don't, so don't be fooled by the fact that they have names you can't pronounce in Latin. All right. What it is, is a bunch of bones that they found somewhere in Africa or in China or in someone's backyard in England. That was the Piltdown Man. Um, it was a pig tooth. or something. It's just amazing the hoaxes that have gone on in this area. And it's interesting, too, how they will hold the cranium of one of these, like, homo habilis or whatever, so that, like you're dealing with a medieval relic, Okay almost they're almost weird about it 
And I tell you, I read Gould and these other guys, they almost get religious when they start talking about our immediate ancestors. I think it is a form of ancestor worship. And realize Romans 1 says they worship the creature, the created thing, rather than the creator. And so Philip Johnson picks up on this and he says, let me ask you a question. All right, descriptions of fossils from people who yearn to cradle their ancestors in their hands ought to be scrutinized as carefully as a letter of recommendation from a job applicant's mother. <laughs> okay, could there be a little bias here? Could there be that maybe it's not all that cracked up to be? That what they found was a bit of a, a jawbone, a little piece of the head bone, a couple of teeth, and uh, you know, a, a, an arm and a, a half of a pelvis, and they get a whole community of people that you know walked erect and that made flint type. I mean, where did it come from? It's a little suspect. That's all. Look at the artist renditions here. You see of the evolution of man. I had Jeremy put some shorts on the guys. I just felt like since you know we're post Garden of Eden, we needed to be respectable here. I said he made them look like towels like they'd just gotten out of the shower. <laughs> you know, I just have a little respect. So I, I covered them. And I thought that the first three looked like people enough to clothe them. The other ones I didn't think needed clothing. So we just didn't. Okay. <laughs> Some people put clothes on their dogs, I guess. I've seen little dog coats and other things. But you see, I, I gave you these pictures here. Look, because these artists' renditions have been Im Im amazingly influential in people's imaginations about our ancestry. They really have. You know, oh, there they are, you know, with fire, you know, crouching over like animals and over the fire. And then they're a little out of order, but there they are, you know, now with clothes on. Do you see the clothes, the animal skins, and they're kind of in a family unit, family structure. There they are burying a dead person. That's the origins of religion. You know, that's where it all started, you know. That's where creationists started back when we started, you know, having religious thoughts. That's what they think, okay? But I'm just telling you, this is all artist rendition stuff. What they're actually working with are bones that in many cases were scattered over two or three uh, quarter miles, or two or three miles, uh, square miles is what I meant to say. And then they pull them together into one skeleton. That's dishonest, I think. I think it's not good science. And uh, I remember one of these guys was on a talk show and he was holding a skull with a brow and all this. And he said, what's all this blue, blue stuff? He said, well, that's the clay that the, that the skilled person used to put together. He said, well, how do you know what it looks like? He said, well, we imagine that this would be a reasonable transitional form from the last one. It's just like the, the Chicago Museum's picture. Those skulls, all they had was a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and they put it together. Very, very suspect. All right. Oh, boy. Other matters of creation, we don't have time for them. Sorry. Um, but maybe uh, I'll begin next time quickly with the gap theory and day-age theory and all those sort of things. Do you have any questions about uh, evolution? Do you, do you guys believe in it? Yes, I I'm sorry. If everything is supposed to um, be specifically used and a purpose for it, why would uh, the apes go from having hair, which they needed no coat for, to losing it to be having to find something hmm. for clothing? I don't know. <laughs> I don't I mean, think that, they would. That, that in itself is totally opposite. Yeah. Because here's something that's functioning perfectly well, and all of a sudden now the man has to go kill something to yeah. be able to cover himself to keep warm? Yeah. I, I don't know. I can't, I can't explain it. I'll tell you this. The whole Genesis account and all that is so important for morality. All right? I've thought about, I've thought about um, for example, um, you know, they say that one of the things I read, that this, is the, this little planet 
supports life so tenuously. We need to take care of it. So there's a feeling of ownership. I believe that was put in us by the image of God. That's the image of God. A sense that we are to fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it, take care of it, whatever. It was there from the beginning. I'm saying if we're evolved, who cares? It's not going to be destroyed in my lifetime. What do I care? Where does that morality come from? Well, they say it's instinctive to keep the species alive. Morality keeps the species alive. Well, then I have problems on the issue of homosexuality. How does that keep the species alive? I've had a question about that before. Do you think any evolutionist would get up and say homosexuality is evil and wicked? Do you think they would say that? No way. And I would say, then how is that genetically advantageous to the species? It's a dead end. It ends the species. It makes us extinct. They have no explanation for it. I think it's wrong because God said so, but they have no way to say that it's wrong. It's a foundation of all morality. Why shouldn't we kill each other? Why shouldn't we murder? Why not? Because God said not to. That's why not. Not just because the species will become extinct. Anyway, we'll talk more, God willing, next time. If you have any questions, I'd love to come, you know, come up and talk. Um, I, want, I want you to raise your hands. If you believe in evolution, uh, let's go the other way. If you believe in creation, raise your hand. I won't ask the other question. If you do, come and talk to me afterwards. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're so very grateful for the, um, the evidence that there is, even in science, that you have made all things. But God, all humor aside and, and levity aside, we, we see the evidence of people's hardness of heart and concocting this demonic, this evil system, which is so complicated, Lord, and therefore it's so appealing and enticing. We know that at Duke University, at UNC, at many other institutes of higher learning, uh, there are people being taught these lies and they are losing their tenuous grip on faith, on Christian faith. Father, I pray that you would flow into them uh, the truth that, uh, that you created all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Oh, Father, I pray that we would live according to the, the laws that you have given us, Lord, because you gave them to us. Thank you for the study and the time we've had tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.